Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned center for the production of policy-relevant research on key developments in the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, visit griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word, or email gai at griffith.edu.au. Now and then, I am reminded of a book whose author I ought to have had on new books in Southeast Asian studies some time ago. The Perfect Business, Anti-Trafficking and the Sex Trade Along the Mekong is one such book, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2012, which came back to my attention after being cited enthusiastically by Sally Engel Mary in her recent Seductions of Quantification. Its author, Sevea Molland, wrote The Perfect Business based on ethnographic work at the border of Thailand and Laos, having earlier worked on an anti-trafficking project in Laos funded by the Norwegian government. Today, he's a Senior Lecturer in Anthropology at the Australian National University, and he's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a member at the Institute for Advanced Study, Princeton, and host of the channel. Sphere, thanks for taking up the belated invitation to come on the show. Pleasure, Nick. Whether or not sex trading is the most ancient profession, anti-trafficking is surely among the newest. What got it going, and why is it booming? Yes, that's an important question, and I think to answer that, uh, there are two things to keep in mind. On the one hand, we have uh, the question whether trafficking in an empirical sense actually is uh, increasing and and the reasons for that. Relatedly, we get the question, why the attention? Why is it that suddenly you have media, governments, United Nations agencies, etc., paying attention to the issue? I think there are a few different things that come together, which has really emerged since the 1990s. It has in part to do with how migration in relation to the state has taken on a different type of role, if you like, after the end of the Cold War. So we see suddenly migration becoming a, a not, not a new concern, but it, it's a slightly renewed concern in the way it's thought about how it gets intertwined with notions of security. And this is something that is really coming together during the 1990s onwards. You chose to research the topic on the border of Thailand and Laos. Why there and how did you do it? Yes. So the way this happened was that I, in the early 2000s, I, uh, and back then I was not an academic. I, I left university and I was, I got this job with United Nations on a regional anti-trafficking project, and uh, my position was based in in Laos. So I was based there for about three years, three and a half years, working with the United Nations Development Program. And and again, this was one of the very first regional anti-trafficking programs within the aid sector in the region. And I believe also probably globally, it's really in the early 2000s, late 1990s, where the anti-trafficking movement, if you like, is, is really taking off. 
while I was working with the with the UN, I um, you know obviously I I learned a lot in terms of migration in the local context of of uh, Laos, Thailand, but also the region. But you learn a lot also about the nature of aid and how UN agencies intersect with local governments, and also how that sort of unfolds when you're trying to address a particular phenomenon that is taking place in a, in a cross-border environment. And over time, uh, it became very clear to me that, you know, an interesting thing was that although we were working for the UN, we actually knew very little, very little engagement and understanding of what was going on in terms of uh, cross-border mobility. And I was just, you know, I wanted to go back into academia, so I decided to then apply for a PhD program, and then I started researching trafficking in, in Laos and Thailand. So the, the specificity of the, the specific location of the study is very much then, uh, it stems from the simple fact that that's where my previous work took place with the UN. And you asked me also then, how did I do it? And I mean, that's a quite sort of big question. Well, one of the big things that, you know, in initial stages when I was planning my research, one thing that was very sort of hotly debated at the time within anti-trafficking circles was this idea of the demand side. And for people who may not necessarily be familiar with this, what that basically means is, especially in the context of prostitution and sex work, the idea is that we ought to have focus on why do customers purchase sex from women who may have been trafficked or also brokers or perhaps employers. That's sort of considered the demand side. So the idea is that policy responses ought to be directed in that way as opposed to simply looking at reasons for why poor people leave village communities and that sort of thing. Uh, it's actually a very contested policy doctrine and it's not necessarily about prostitution per se. I mean, you can get the same type of arguments being made in relation to, say, young Lao migrants ending up on fishing boats in Thailand or in service sector work, construction, and so forth. In terms of my methodology, one of the things that I wanted to somehow do was to, in a way, pursue this idea of the demand side a little bit and try to look at where migrants ended up as, a, as opposed to simply, say, interviewing and doing field work amongst in village communities where, where migrants may be traveling to Thailand. So that's sort of giving you a little bit of a gist of, of the way I ended up focusing on trafficking and how I ended up carrying out the research itself. So did you just stroll into bars and brothels and sit down and observe what was taking place? Was there something else to it? Uh, and how did the people in those places respond to your presence? That's a good question. And it took me quite a long time to work that out. And uh, I remember when I started fieldwork, so I, and I had a lot of conversations, obviously, with my supervisor, who is also very familiar with both Laos and Thailand, as well as prostitution, but more in, in from the perspective of health interventions. So I remember when I started my fieldwork, initially, I spent time in, in Bangkok, and it proved extremely difficult to, to carry out the research. And again, this is sort of one of those classic examples where, you know, on the one hand, it is even when you have some familiarity with the topic, it's, it's one thing sitting in, a, in an office somewhere at a university planning a research and how do you actually do it in practice when you are in the field. So, for example, when I went into my field work, what I really wanted to try to focus on was to what extent there's any bearing on 
clients' preferences uh, in the sex industry in terms of recruitment of particular kinds of women. There's a little bit of literature relating to Laos, uh, and I believe some in Thailand too, which is touching on this a little bit. So say, for example, Aka women ending up in bars and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's what I wanted to look at. And the idea was to really then try to focus on the clients and to build report and do some sort of ethnographic study with men, basically, in these bars. Now, when I started doing my research, in when I was in Bangkok first, it proved really, really difficult to work out where to go in the first place because, again, what I was interested in here was not simply just prostitution and sex work, but it was really about Lao migration into bars across the border. And locating Lao or venues where you have Lao women working in Bangkok turned out to be very, very difficult. It took me about three months or so. I moved up to Huasai in Laos, you know, in the northwestern parts of Laos. And that's where suddenly things became much more obvious in, the, in understanding, I guess, Lao migrants coming into bars. But when it comes back to the, you know, this point about clients, what became very obvious very quickly is that, to put it very simply, when you walk into a bar, you have to compete with the women for the men's attention, basically. And that's the sort of tragic comic in a way, I suppose, uh, it became very obvious to me that it, it, it was very difficult to build those relationships with men in those settings. What happens instead is, of course, when you walk into places like that, women who work there, they think you are a client, so they gravitate towards you. Another thing here has to do with the way in which these venues operate. In many of these places, we are dealing with indirect sex work in the sense that you have, it's sort of like a hostess service, basically. So you will have beer shops, sometimes karaoke clubs, and that means that there's opportunities to have quite a lot of conversation within those venues. So what happened over time was that I was able to talk to women who worked there and gradually introduce that I was not a client and, you know, I was uh, doing research. And then, although in many cases, many women will then not be particularly willing to talk, quite a few actually are willing to talk, and, and that, that surprised me a little bit. And then over time, uh, also talking to then venue owners sometimes and recruiters is also sometimes that uh, something that became possible to do. So that that's just the way in which I, I was sort of carrying out the research in, in the bars themselves. And to be clear on the specific location in the book, you were doing the research both in Nongkai on the Thai side and Bientian or Wiangchan on the Laotian side. That's correct. And, and again, I mean, initially, as sort of a bit of a scoping exercise, I, there were all the venues or the locations I wanted to explore. I was down in Savannakhet and Muktahama, which is on the Thai side, which is further down south. Uh, but in the end, I ended up simply focusing on Vientiane and Nongkai, Partly for pragmatic reasons, you know, uh, I was doing a PhD in anthropology, and that means you have to do ethnographic fieldwork. There's an expectation of some level of in-depth research of social relations, uh, social practices, and so forth. So rather than spreading myself very thin, trying to cover a lot of different locations, I simply uh, focused on Nongkai and Vientiane. And it's, it's quite feasible in the sense that they are fairly close in proximity. So I did a lot of crisscrossing between the two towns on a weekly basis. I would spend a few days in Vientiane. I would then cross back into Nongkai, carrying out research there for a few days, and then move back and forth like that. So that's what I was doing for a duration of around 15 months. So now we've set the scene, let's turn to some of the arguments and larger themes in the book. And why don't we start with the title? What is the perfect business that the book's title interrogates? The perfect business, this is actually a phrase that derives from a donor proposal 
from my former employer, the UN agency that I was working for. So this, yeah, so this was a donor proposal when this particular project was trying to mobilize donor funding for their second phase. And one of the sort of catchphrases was this idea of trafficking being the perfect business. And what that really means and how it was articulated is this idea that traffickers and trafficking as a phenomenon is heavily underpinned by a a market type of mechanism. So traffickers, they make a lot of profits. They are able to move quickly to new areas or new type of sectors if they can maximize profits. And for those sorts of reasons, they are really, really difficult to capture and they're difficult to, to deal with from a policy perspective, which hence then, of course, justifies the need for funding for fighting trafficking. So that's where the title is, is the deriving from. It comes from the aid sector itself, the anti-trafficking sector. And in my mind, and this is why I, I chose to use it as a title, it sort of encapsulates, I think, a very sort of central part of anti-trafficking discourse, which relates very much to this idea that we can think about anti-trafficking and or, or trafficking rather with reference to a, a type of economic language. So you do uh, criticize the market metaphor and argue that when applied to trafficking, it's inapt. Can you say a little bit more about what it is aside from the economic language that you've alluded to that you think is wrong with it? Yeah, so let me just say a little bit more perhaps about this economic metaphor and, and then to move on and say why I critique it and, and why I think why that is a problem. Now, if you look at especially projects, aid organizations who combat trafficking, but also governments who deal with, with trafficking issues, very commonly you will see economic language being employed. I mentioned earlier the demand side. This is something that's being used a lot over the years. People talk about supply and demand. So immediately here we, we recognize an, an obvious economic type of language being used to explain trafficking. And there's a lot of focus on things like profitability of traffickers and very much sort of a rational choice economic way of thinking about trafficking and, and articulating what trafficking is all about to me then why, why do i have a problem with that what seems to be important to consider in this context is to think through and investigate how that particular way of thinking about trafficking has an impact on the way in which trafficking is acted upon and when we look at that, we also have to then consider how does that actually intersect with actual migration practices, actual work practices amongst migrants themselves. So, so, and I think that's another thing here that that also, in a way, encapsulates the way I did the research in the sense of, you know, I didn't only look at migration and recruitment into the sex industry along the Lao Thai border. I also examined anti-trafficking programs themselves. How do they use this? economic language of anti-trafficking or these market metaphors and how does that translate into activities that is implemented in particular contexts. So why is the market metaphor a difficult one? One of the key things to me is that what it tends to do is that it really obfuscates what is really the central thing to coming to terms with cross-border migration, workplace relationships and bars, etc. And that is social relations. So when we talk about supply and demand, it becomes a very sort of abstract way 
of thinking and responding to an issue like migration and prostitution and sex work and so forth. And I think this is something that is, is evident in quite a few different ways in terms of actual implementation of programs. The key thing for me is, is that it actually is very unhelpful if we want to try to understand in a social sense how migration and recruitment takes place in this particular context. Okay, so you're offering a powerful anthropological critique that the markets are socially embedded sites and information isn't being shared in the way that the marketplace metaphor suggests that it is. Before we go to a break, can you offer one or two examples from the book because you have a lot of fascinating stories from conversations that you had with women who are working in the bars and brothels about their experiences and the way that they exchange information and how they move from site to site. Well, one thing that I thought was quite interesting, and this is something that surprised me as well when I was carrying out the research, I was simply looking at price differences in the bars uh, on both sides of the border. In Again, for, uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with a specific location, Laos is generally speaking, a much poorer country than Thailand. You have heavy migration of young Lao people to Thailand for work, but also for just simple visits and leisure travel as well. So one thing that I was doing over time was that I was trying to understand how these bars operated on both sides of the border. And what became apparent to me quite quickly was that in many cases, prices for commercial sex was basically much higher on the on the Lao side compared to the Thai side. And this is something that that sort of goes a little bit against the grain or I think common perceptions because Laos is poorer. People, and when I say people, I mean trafficking projects, but also I think just broadly it's sort of assumed that for that reason Thailand would be more expensive than Laos. But although there are sometimes similarities, and of course in Thailand you also have a much more diversity within the sex industry, meaning that you will have very sort of cheap low-end venues, but you will also have very high-end venues where purchasing sex will be very expensive. But nonetheless, generally, you have this, this situation in this particular local context where you can compare towns like Vientiane and Nongkai, where prices back in Vientiane would be higher in many cases than across the border. So, of course, then I started to look at, all right, how does that work in terms of income for women? So I, I did a fair bit of research in some of the venues that I, did, that I carried out research, examining income. And again, it's, not, it's simply not the case that it's necessarily a better deal for Lao women to, to work in a bar in Nongkai compared to Nongkai, rather the opposite. And of course, that poses then the question, why on earth do they cross the border to earn less money? This sort of goes against, against the grain of economic common sense within the anti-trafficking sector. And one of the, one of the things I talk about in, in, my, in my book, and, and again, this comes back to this point about social relations, is that so much of recruitment, so much of the way in which women move from one place to the other is heavily influenced by social relationships. It's uh, through people you know. It is not really, although it can't be excluded completely, of course, but it's, it's we can't simply explain this in light of migrants somehow examining market prices in some sort of abstract sense. So that's one example. I guess another really interesting example, and this again is, is back to this point about social relationships, is how in anti-trafficking discourse, when you talk about trafficking in terms of economic metaphors, and when you do that, then you are not really paying attention to social relationships. Then a lot of program uh, models, if you like, are 
are premised on that assumption. So, for example, if you look at law enforcement in anti-trafficking, very often they're making this huge assumption that by having prosecutions of traffickers, we can then reduce trafficking. We can reduce the demand side, as they will say, again, the use of the trafficking economic language. But the problem is, is that at least in this particular context I was looking at, a very typical trafficker, and we should maybe use inverted commas here because it's a, it's a slightly problematic concept. In many cases, a person who is recruiting someone into a bar and may use deception, being not forthcoming about the actual nature of the work, this may be someone from the same village community. Maybe not the best friend, but an acquaintance, someone they know. And you can imagine, so when you're then going to try to have prosecution against traffickers, you are basically then having a strategy in terms of policy which is assuming that that's sort of possible. But of course, if both victim and perpetrator uh, know each other, come from the same village community, those sort of things are going to be very, very difficult. And that is indeed what is such a challenge for the anti-trafficking sector, is that having successful prosecutions has turned out to be extremely difficult. So that's another sort of example of how this is playing out, if you like, in, in the bars themselves, and how that is rather quite different compared to anti-trafficking discourse itself. Sophia, let's uh, pause here for a message from one of the channel's sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk about how the book has been received, maybe tie up a couple of loose ends on the arguments you've been presenting, and then go to what you've been doing since the book was published. Yes, thank you. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is generously supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney to support research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelt C-E-N-T-R-E. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're meeting today with Svea Molland to talk about The Perfect Business, Anti-Trafficking and the Sex Trade Along the Mekong, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2012. Svea, you say that both traffickers and anti-traffickers are acting in bad faith. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that uh, anti-traffickers and traffickers act in bad faith is that in some ways they are similar. It's a perhaps slightly cheeky juxtaposition. But uh, so let me first give you an example from traffickers and then I can move on to talk about anti-traffickers. A very common phenomenon when it comes to recruitment in the specific local context that I've been examining is that uh, we're dealing with forms of deception. So, for example, there might be a young woman who herself works in a bar. When she goes back to the village, she may invite others, not being fully truthful about the nature of the work, and then bring them to the bar for a commission that she would receive from the bar owner. And when I was trying to understand this particular form of recruitment, it came across to me as being not only deeply problematic on, on many levels, but also difficult to understand in a sociological way, especially because in so many cases, the person who was recruiting actually knew the person they were bringing into the bar. How is that possible? So over time in my fieldwork, 
partly through interviews, partly through conversations, and simply spending time in these places, it became more and more apparent to me that, you know, when you talk to someone about these things, they're not in a way just lying to others, they're lying to themselves too. So there are a lot of ways in which informants, they, they are looking for ways or they are positioning themselves in, in a particular way where they are distancing themselves from their own complicity in what they are doing. Again, just to give you a bit more detail here. So what is very common in these recruitment episodes would be that because we are dealing with sex work taking place in, uh, you know, it, it's uh, combined with, uh, with drinking and being sort of a hostess service, often when they end up in, in a bar, when, when a new recruit comes to a bar and she's surprised by the fact that this is a bar, perhaps she thought it was just a normal restaurant or something like that, it is not unusual for them, the venue owner to say, oh, well, okay, I, I didn't realize this. Well, how about you just do chores around the bar? You don't have to go out with customers. You can simply serve drinks and, and that's it. And what happens is that the, the, the new recruit will start doing that. But you get very little income from just tips and commission from selling drinks. So maybe after a few days, maybe after a few weeks, maybe a bit longer, uh, at one point, the new recruit then, in the inverted commas, make her, you know, makes the step herself to go out with the customer. And let's remind ourselves, this is in a context where then a lot of alcohol is consumed as well. So we see here sort of a situation is created where the venue owner can sort of say, well, I didn't recruit her. You know, I didn't force her to do anything. And so can the, re the recruiter say the same thing, or the trafficker, if you like, right? You know, I brought her in, okay, maybe I didn't say everything about what type of work it, it was all about, but I didn't actually force her myself to, to go out with customers. She made that choice herself. And that, that's the type of sort of commentary and, and responses that I will be getting a lot when discussing recruitment. So that's what I mean by bad faith in terms of the traffickers. There's all this externalization of complicity in events. Now, with the anti-traffickers, of course, this is a very different context. We're dealing with often highly educated to people who work for aid agencies. But when we look at anti-trafficking, what we are dealing with here is also a type of externalization of your own engagement in something. So, for example, uh, one thing I talk about in the book is victim identification of vict uh, or identification of trafficked victims. And so often you have aid officials, they're all on about uh, identification, victim identification guidelines. For example, now why do they always talk about guidelines? Well, of course, on one level, it's it's bureaucratically convenient to have a guideline in terms of knowing to how to do something. But it's also a way of externalizing the very simple fact that as an anti-trafficking official, you will need to make at the end of the day subjective decisions about is this a trafficked victim? Is this not a trafficked victim? Is this a trafficker? Is this not a trafficker? And then the guideline becomes sort of a way of making that decision for you, so to speak. So again, sort of a similar externalization of your own need to, to make up your mind, basically, about something. So that's what I mean by bad faith. And I should also add that, of course, the, the bad faith discussion that I'm providing in my book, this derives from Jean-Paul Sartre's analysis of bad faith in his book, Being in Nothingness. But then this has sort of been taken up first by Bourdieu, who I think arguably is sociologizing, if you like, uh, uh, bad faith, trying to think about this in a social sense, how human beings in certain situations or social groups perhaps even can engage in forms of self-deception. And then I'm, I'm just simply using that as an analytical tool to try to understand both recruitment, but also how uh, aid practitioners are in a way trying to reconcile, I suppose, on the one hand, this quite abstract discourse, which has, you know, which is underpinned by these strong economic metaphors. But then somehow, how do you then connect that to actual field realities that you are dealing with?
That's great sociological analysis. And you make clear that one of your goals in writing the book was to point to the shortcomings and analyze the shortcomings of development programs, not to ridicule the anti-trafficking folks. Uh, but a lot of your criticisms in the book are pretty forthright. So I'm interested to hear what kind of pushback you might have had since the book was published, whether from the development community or from scholars who have a different uh, position to you on this topic? The first thing to say about that is that, to my knowledge, I haven't actually received that much pushback from aid practitioners themselves. And maybe they're just being polite and, and not saying anything. Uh, I certainly know many who have read my work, and I, indeed, I, I still maintain contact with several of them. So that's, that's sort of an interesting thing. And I, I even to this day, I'm still thinking about have I been uh, nuanced enough in terms of describing and analyzing anti-trafficking praxis. And looking back now, I, I wish perhaps that I could somehow portray them in a slightly more generous way in the sense that I, I think it's important to note that many people who work for these projects are actually reflexive people who often know the local place where they, they do work. But nonetheless, they are, they're caught in bureaucratic systems. So that's one thing. But again, as I mentioned, not that much criticism so far. In terms of other types of responses, uh, there's been quite a few reviews of my book uh, out in academic journals. Many of them have been positive, but there has been a few uh, criticisms. So I can maybe just highlight some of them and then respond to them. I think one of the most sort of useful points that's been made has been that in my particular research, I did not uh, deal very much with what is going on back in the village communities themselves. I didn't really go back with informants to, to where they came from, for example. Personally, I actually think that's a fairly valid criticism. But to respond to it, I would point out that there are specific reasons why I didn't. Uh, one is that, uh, and I should say, indeed, during fieldwork, I actually was offered several times uh, by informants to, to go back to their village communities. But, you know, we have to keep a few things in mind if we were to do that. One thing is about strategic decisions about methods. If you start to do that, you then also you're stretching out uh, the scope of your research. And there's a great risk, I believe, that you are then ending up trying to cover a bit of everything, but without really being able to go in depth in trying to understand what's going on in a specific context. I mean, I can't... Uh, emphasizing of how hard it is to research these venues. It's not like you can just walk in a few times and then you can understand what's going on. You have to invest awful lot of time. So then to also then try to look at village communities, it would simply be, it, it will just make the project very, very large indeed. And, and so it simply reflects the strategic decision by me or what you want to focus on. The other thing though with this too, I think is research ethics. Because you can imagine in the context of researching a very sensitive topic like human trafficking, and then starting to go back into village communities where people come from in a country like Laos, where you have a one-party government, party structures penetrate all the way down to the village level. There is a history here also of punitive responses sometimes from the government, both in relation to trafficking as well as prostitution. Then you have to be extremely careful uh, and think through how will that be Proceed. How will you be understood when you then return to, to a village community? So for that reason, I, I felt there was just simply too much risk in doing that. If you were to look at village communities, I think that would be fine, but to combine with also looking at the bars in the law context, I think that's a rather tricky thing. 
Another reviewer has also raised issues about whether my research on the anti-trafficking folk themselves, if that was uh, sufficient, if it, if it perhaps could have been more in-depth. I think that's also a fair point. It is actually quite true that when I carried out my fieldwork, originally this was really about trying to understand the bars and, and even the clients. Looking specifically at the anti-trafficking dimension of all of this in itself, that's something that came more sort of halfway through the fieldwork. It just sort of became more and more obvious to me that I had to also look at that. And that's a bit ironic because I used to work for anti-trafficking and it, you know, I had to sort of be well into the fieldwork to realize I had to sort of study my own backyard. I think that's fine, a, a good criticism in the sense that ideally it would have been nice to have more on the institutional response. And that is in fact something that I'm exploring more now. At the same time, I want to rebut some of the criticisms a little bit in the sense that, for example, one reviewer was referring to Cambodia, where, for example, looking at how uh, certain NGOs have sort of tourist tours where they, the tourists can come and, and be guided by NGOs about issues relating to trafficking and prostitution and was sort of hinting at why I didn't I explore those sorts of things. This seems to me to simply reflect a complete lack of understanding of the differences between these countries. Laos is not Cambodia. In Cambodia, you have an enormous amount of NGOs who can operate quite freely. You have a distinct Western-oriented sex tourism sector where, where these NGOs are operating. And you don't have that in Laos. You, you can't simply go in and Laos. It's a one-party state, and, and there's no room for NGOs to operate in that way. So the reason I haven't explored those things is simply because they don't exist in that particular context. Back on the uh, traffickers' side briefly, in attending to the agency of the women involved in the sex trade, is there a risk that you could downplay structural violence or understate the asymmetry and power relations that led the women into the sex work? One of the difficult things when you write uh, and try to do an ethnography or, or trafficking in, in relation to the sex industry, and by the way, Hera, I should quickly also just point out that, you know, when I was focusing on the sex industry, I am perhaps being a bit guilty of reproducing a bit of a stereotype about trafficking that is all about sex, sex work. And I, I explain in the book that part of the reason for that is, is methodological in the sense that you can actually access the sex industry in a way that is not quite equally the case with, say, domestic work, for example. I think that's important to understand in, in terms of the context of the book. But back to your question, I think the difficulty when you look at commercial sex in relation to trafficking and talk about agency is that there is such a huge literature uh, partly in feminist studies, but also in other, from other disciplinary angles, which is discussing agency in relation to sex work. It's sort of a, there's a bit of sort of an almost analytical semantic overinvestment in, in some of these discussions, which I think makes it quite difficult to navigate, to provide a, a balanced analysis of questions relating to agency. I think it's important to emphasize the, the level to which women have agency in these situations. The thing at the same time, and I'm probably a bit guilty of this myself, is that I feel it's such an overused argument in relation to literature on sex work. Looking at things like structural violence, I think what I perhaps could have done more and or perhaps what would be more useful generally would be to maybe try to think that through, but perhaps by not looking at sex work itself. I think to say, if we look at factory work or the fishing sector in Thailand, which there is a lot of concerns now relating to young 
boys and men ending up on fishing boats. It's perhaps in some ways easier, both in a sort of an analytical, theoretical sense to, to think through questions relating to structural violence. But also, if you want to sort of put a policy hat on too, I think it's actually more interesting work to be done there. How have things changed since the book was written? So let me start first with some of the sort of policy changes when it comes down to trafficking, and then a little bit about, then I can say something about actual changes to the nature of migration and, and I guess, work as well when it comes to Laos and Thailand, but also also perhaps more broadly in the Mekong region. One of the big changes that has happened is that funding for anti-trafficking has lost a bit of momentum. And I don't think that's true necessarily globally, but it is for the Mekong region. Because what's happened is that since the, you know during the 1990s is where you know slowly anti-trafficking is starting to sort of uh, build up, so to speak, and and the Mekong region is one of the first places in the world where anti-trafficking takes off, and I think that has in part to do with that anti-trafficking started off as a sort of a development aid type of issue. Uh, so we have had many, many years of anti-trafficking interventions. Why donors have lost a bit of interest is, is a big topic itself, but I think it has in part to do with donor fatigue. Where are the results? Even after two decades of anti-trafficking, there's still no uh, agreement on scales of trafficking, let alone what it is. What exactly is trafficking? It's this sort of uh, opaque uh, concept. And I think you know the global financial crisis was a bit of a pivotal point because it's not just anti-trafficking funding. It's also funding for development aid more broadly as well. To quote one senior official from the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, who I interviewed a little while ago, uh, he said, the anti-trafficking candle is burning down. And I think that's a quite sort of fitting metaphor for what's going on. At the same time, what we've seen is that the discourse has changed somewhat. Not only has it broadened from beyond sex work and also looking at all the labor sectors, but although the word trafficking is still being used, we see a lot of other terms that have taken on some momentum. One is modern slavery. This is a big term being used now. Supply chain governance, governed migration, regular migration, and also safe migration. And in fact, my current research project is specifically on safe migration, which was used also back sort of in the early 2000s in relation to trafficking. But over the years, it's slowly taken on a bit more of a momentum. So back to donors, another key change that has happened is that although you still have bilateral funding for trafficking, you see now more and more private sector investment, so to speak, into this space. Uh, so back to modern slavery, we have rich uh, you know, entrepreneurs like Andrew Forrest, for example, who is a mining millionaire in Australia. He uh, He's put millions of dollars now into c- combating modern slavery. Some listeners may have heard about the Modern Slavery Index, which is related to this. And this is an example where you have then business people starting to fund modern slavery projects. The co-founder of eBay is another one who's gotten involved in this sort of thing. It does a few things. It changes the focus a bit away from law enforcement. So it's less about trying to arrest traffickers, but rather about trying to somehow clean supply chains. This is a very, very big topic itself, but I think it's uh, extremely interesting to see where this is taking efforts. And one thing I can say is that I know through talking to informants and people I know in the sector, it's created a lot of attention and controversy within the aid sector itself. There are a lot of people who will be highly critical of this move. You know, it's a bit like anti-trafficking 2.0. It is sort of just reproducing a lot of the problems that we've seen with anti-trafficking. And by problems, I mean 
that at the end of the day, does this really make a big difference to poor migrants? And the evidence does not quite support that it does. When it comes to the actual uh, migration itself, I think that perhaps the single biggest difference now is social media. When I carried out my field work in 2005 and 2006, migrants would perhaps own a mobile phone, but not all of them. And it was just really a mobile phone. But now, having a smartphone and the use of social media, so people use Facebook, they use a lot of text messaging apps, like Line is very, very popular in both Laos and Thailand. WhatsApp is another one. The level of social media communication within migrant communities is interesting to follow. At the same time, a lot of things remain the same. So, for example, you know, in my book, I make reference to where you have Lao women moving to Nguyen Khai province. And in terms of questions around legality, uh, they're actually able to do this with passports and also obtain work permits even in Thailand through brokers. I was up in Nguyen Khai just a few months ago. And the exact same type of, of, of arrangements are in place in Nongkai province, and I believe this would be similar in other border provinces as well, where you have a lot of brokers involved, passports, work permits, etc. becomes a capital resource that is appropriated for brokering practices. So there are a lot of things that are actually just pretty much the same as before, uh, but then key changes as well, one of them being social media. Are you working on another book? I'm still very much in the field work phase at the moment, but I am working on safe migration. And again, what this is really about, I guess, is is the type of discourse that is a bit of a response to and an extension of anti-trafficking. And rather than trying to engage in a, a discourse which is sort of creating this dichotomies between traffickers and victims, etc., it is much more about trying to think through how migration can be managed, but without necessarily having to ending up labeling and categorizing migrants in particular ways in order to assist them. It's still a focus on Laos and Thailand, but I also have expanded the focus to also look at Burmese migrants. A lot of this is in Thailand, though some work is also in Laos. Very interesting. We'll have to stay in touch about that and perhaps get you back on the show once that next book is out. In the meantime, thank you, Swear Mollet, for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about the perfect business. Thank you very much, Nick. And thanks to you also, dear listeners, for joining us. The topic of this interview was interesting to you. Then you may also like to check out the interview I did with Holly High in 2015 on fields of desire, poverty and policy in Laos. Or how about Julie Fetty talking with Denise Brennan on life interrupted trafficking into forced labor in the United States. Both of these interviews are among the almost 4,000 interviews with authors on every conceivable topic available now free of charge on the New Books Network website. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the chin of the boat.